The title of my sermon is The Creation and Commissioning of Men and Women in God's Image. The Creation and Commissioning of Men and Women in God's Image from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, that will be our text for this morning, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, as we look at the creation and commissioning of men and women, you and me, in God's image. Let's pray. We're thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the opportunity and the privilege of preaching it. I pray with earnestness, with the power of the Spirit. Pray for my brothers and sisters as they listen, that they would listen well, give attention to your word, that they would be ready to obey and trust, give thanks to you, and that together we might glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen. In April 2022, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, asked the newly nominated Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson during her nomination hearing if she could provide a definition for the word woman. Jackson answered, I cannot. In July 2022, The Church of England also asked the question and argued that there is no official definition for what a woman is. In February 2022, Leah Thomas, University of Pennsylvania trans swimmer, whose masculine physicality gave him a significant advantage over women competitors, won the Ivy League championship in the 100 200 and 500 meter freestyle races. Last month, when dropping off our car in a parking garage prior to watching a Cubs doubleheader, go Cubs, we were assisted by a person whose hands and legs were clearly masculine, but whose makeup, wig, and mannerisms approximated a feminine look. Welcome to the new normal in terms of personhood, gender, and sexuality. A perspective that seemingly challenges the biblical presentation of people created in the divine image. That's our focus this morning. So our text is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I will read it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's place this passage in its context. Genesis 1, 1 to 25 presents, narrates God's creation of the world and everything in it with the high point, the climax, the apex coming in God's creation of human beings in his image. 
So God the Father spoke the universe and everything it contains. He spoke it into existence through his word, that is his son, with the presence and power of the spirit also involved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creating the universe and everything in it, reaching the apex, the highlight point in God's creation of us human beings in his image. Verse 26, then, is God's deliberation to create a being more like him than any other created being. A being more like God, more like God than plants, vegetation, fish, birds, livestock, crawling things, wildlife, and so forth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit purpose together, let us make, and purpose to add to the already good creation another being, a kind of creature, humankind, or humanity, a final kind of creature, you and me. The divine plan, the divine purpose, was to create human beings in God's image. As image bearers, we are to mirror God. We are to reflect God and his character of love, goodness, truth-telling, justice, righteousness, faithfulness, and more. We are to reflect God. And as image bearers, we are to represent God by being his co-regents, his co-rulers for the purpose of the flourishing of human society. So as image bearers, we, we reflect God and we represent God. So this morning, when you looked at yourself in the mirror, you were gazing at the image of God. And as you reflect him in the world in which you live, as you love and express joy and faithfulness and truth-telling, you are mirroring God and then representing him as well. Verse 27 is God's actualization of his deliberation to create human beings in the divine image. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in accordance with the divine design, operate together according to that purpose, to create human beings. So, God created. Verse 28 is what we call the cultural mandate, the charter that God established with humankind to build society for the flourishing of civilization with two aspects to this mandate. Procreation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and vocation, work, subdue the earth, and exercise dominion over the rest of the created order. So verse 26 is the blueprint. It's the design for the creation of image bearers. Verse 27 is the product, the outworking, the actual creation of divine image bearers. And verse 28 is the responsibility, the intention, the purpose for us created image bearers. What comes forth from this creative act of God is man. Not in terms of a male human being, it's not Adam, but in terms of humankind, humanity, the human race of which there are two types. 
all human beings, all human beings are created in the divine image. So whatever you might imagine the image of God to be, it's at least male and female. That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And from this passage flow three points, three topics, embodiment, genderedness, and complementarity. If you follow along in the bulletin, you see the outline. Let's start with embodiment. Let's think for a moment about the nature of us created beings, created in the image of God, us human beings. We are not like God who created us in terms of our nature, in terms of the mode of our nature. God is immaterial. God is spiritual in essence, in nature. We are also not like angels, fellow created beings. We are not like them in our nature, in our mode of existence. Angels are immaterial. They're spiritual in essence. Yes, they may take on human nature temporarily. They may appear before us in human form, but that's not the common mode of existence for angels. They are immaterial. They are spiritual in essence. And we human beings are not like animals. We're not like fish, birds, livestock. Again, in terms of our nature, in terms of our mode of existence. Uh, animals are physical in essence, but they lack an immaterial aspect. They don't have a soul. They don't have a spirit. Rather, we human beings, as created by God, are complex beings, not simple beings, but complex being, beings consisting of both a material, physical aspect, our body, as well as an immaterial aspect, a spirit, a soul, or spirit and soul. I don't think I need to convince you about that second aspect, the soul or the spirit, which makes us categorically different from angels. But I want to focus this first point on the first aspect, our embodiment. The big idea here is the proper state of human existence is embodiment. According to God's design, the proper state of human existence is to have a body, to be in a body, that is, to be embodied. By divine design, we human beings are created to be embodied image bearers which makes us categorically different from God in nature and categorically different from angels in nature. God himself is not material. He's not physical. He's not embodied. Yet, God created us human beings according to his purpose to have a material, physical aspect. He created us to be embodied. So, God sees but he does so without eyes, but he's created us with eyes so that we can mirror God's seeing. God hears, but he does so without ears, but he's designed us, created us with ears so that we can hear, similar to God. God speaks, but he doesn't have a mouth, but he's created us with mouths so that we can imitate God by speaking. God acts, but does so without hands. He's created us with hands so that we can act. We can engage in productive activity. 
God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is faithful and true. And when we reflect his character, we are doing exactly according to God's purpose for us as divine image bearers with bodies. Angels are not material, physical, embodied, and they are created according to God's purpose for them. They're created to be different from us embodied human beings. We're not angels. We'll never become angels. But God has designed us human beings to be unlike angels, to be image bearers, and we are more like God than even the angels themselves. Moreover, God has designed us human beings for a purpose different from the purpose of angels. Our purpose is procreation, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, expand the human race through production of more human beings, image bearers, and vocation, subdue and exercise dominion, that is to be co-regents with God in ruling over the rest of the created order. Importantly for our first point, if we divine image bearers are to carry out God's divinely designed purpose for us, we are and we must be embodied, uh, embodied people. We must be embodied image bearers. Embodiment is the proper state of human existence. In this earthly life, if we aren't embodied, we don't exist. In this earthly life, if we don't have a body, we can't exist. Nor can we fulfill the charter that God has established with us, his image bearers. God has created us as embodied people so that we can carry out his role, his purpose, his design for us. Some might object, but what about the intermediate state between our death and the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. I want to underscore this is a glorious state because we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will have, find relief from our labors. We'll have fellowship with one another. And we might say, oh, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? Yes, it does. Our state, the intermediate state between our death and Jesus' return and our resurrection is a penultimate state. It's not our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is to be re-embodied with our resurrection bodies. So the intermediate state, in a sense, is a, a, it's a, an abnormal state. It's a disembodied state, which means in the intermediate state, as we exist there between our death and our resurrection, we can't be fully human because the proper state of human existence is embodiment and we lack a body. We can't be fully saved because God's redemption of us applies not just to our soul or immaterial aspect, it applies to our bodies as well. And we can't even be fully conformed to the image of Jesus because Jesus is the God-man eternally existing not only as a soul, but as an embodied man. So we await Jesus' return, the resurrection of our bodies, even the intermediate state, I think we will long for, we will greatly anticipate that great event, and then we will fulfill God's destiny for us. So the proper state of human beings is embodiment. 
our body is not inherently sinful. It's not the ultimate source of our sin. It's not the primary obstacle to obeying God and following Jesus and becoming more like him. It's not evil in and of itself. But when we consider our body evil, we fall into all kinds of problems. According to statistics, 98% of you women and 92% of us men at some time in our life will wrestle with body image problems because we are not comfortable with our body. We have this standard uh, that's supplied by our culture, the perfect body, the perfect physique, the perfect figure, and we just don't match up. So we wrestle with the reality of our embodiment. So we end up mistreating our, our bodies. We neglect our body. We despise it. But I hope that my point about this biblical perspective on our embodiment will help us overcome these problems, will not uh, allow us to diminish or demean or dismiss our bodies because the proper state of human existence is embodiment. By God's design, you are an embodied image bearer. Moreover, you are a particular bodied, embodied image bearer. God created you to be the embodied image bearer that you are. So the question is, are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied person? The application for point number one, are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied person? Number two, genderedness. Our second main theme or point flowing from Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is genderedness. We face a looming and disconcerting contemporary problem. Detaching maleness and femaleness from biological sex. Detaching maleness and femaleness from XY and XX, or as the current notion has it, Sex is that which is assigned to you at birth. It's that which appears on our birth certificate. In place of this givenness of sex, now there is genderedness. One's self-identification as either a male or a female, regardless of one's genetic or sexed identity. Other complications include unigenderism, moving towards one sex, one gender, and other forms of non-binary genderedness. Facebook had, perhaps still has, at least 70 gender categories. So we have the hormonal and surgical transformation of a biological woman into a man, for example, Charity Bono, daughter of Sonny and Cher, is now Chad Bono. Or we have the hormonal and surgical transformation of a biological man into a woman. Bruce Jenner, for whom I rooted as he ran the decathlon, did the decathlon in the Olympics. In 2015, he came out as Caitlyn Jenner. Scripture directs us to a different reality, a different perspective. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. 
from this biblical perspective then, humankind, the big category, humanity, human race, humankind, has two types. There's a man and there's a woman. Big category, humankind, of which there are two types, male type and female type. But what is a man and what is a woman? A man is a human being in the divine image, created in the divine image, in the male type of humankind, and who naturally, inherently, expresses the common human capacities, I'll define what I mean in a minute, and expresses the common human properties, again, I'll define what I mean in a minute, in ways that are typical of and fitting for a man. Similarly, what is a woman? A woman is a human being created in the divine image in the female type of humankind and who inherently, naturally expresses the common human capacities and common human properties in ways that are typical of and fitting for a woman. God has created us, men and women, with common human capacities and common human properties. What do I mean? Common human capacities include things, these are foundational matters, they're structures like rationality and reason, thinking ability, cognition, emotions, sentiments, feelings, will, volition, the ability to make decisions, motivations, purposing, God has created men and women alike with common human capacities. What are common human properties? These are qualities or characteristics like gentleness, courage, initiative, nurturing, patience, protectiveness, gentleness, goodness, and so forth. These are common human capacities, common human structures. These are common human properties, common human qualities and characteristics. And I maintain there are no particular foundations, no particular structures, no particular capacities. And there are no particular qualities, no particular characteristics or properties that belong exclusively to men or exclusively to women. We share these common human realities. Humankind, man, woman. Let's think about these two columns. And let's think about some of these structures and some of these characteristics. So uh, let's think about reason and rationality. What's, what, what column are we going to put it in? Over here, right? Men are rational and women are not? Oh, no. This is a common human capacity. Both men and women possess rationality, are able to reason. How about emotions? Over here, right? Women are typified by emotions, right? But emotions are common human capacities. So also men, men and women alike, express emotions, possess sentiments, and so forth. How about will, decision-making ability? Oh, yeah, obviously. Obviously both. How about goodness? Maybe in the woman column? No. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. So for us Christians, it 
It's for both men and women. How about justice? Maybe we put it in the male column, but what did Valerie share with us earlier in this service? A sense of justice, a cry, a plea for justice from a woman. And I hope we all resonated with it because justice belongs in both columns, as does self-control and the fruits of the Spirit and the virtues. The idea here is that there are no particular characteristics or qualities that belong in one column rather than the other. At the same time, given God's design of embodied genderedness, these common human capacities and these common human properties must be and will inherently be expressed in gendered ways that are appropriate to men and appropriate to women. Men will express these commonalities in male ways, and women will express these commonalities in female ways because we are gendered. Let's think of a couple examples. Let's take the example of protectiveness. Pro uh, protectiveness. A man finding an intruder in his home does whatever he needs to do to disrupt the evil intentions of this intruder, disarming him, pinning him to the ground, rendering him unconscious, whatever it might be. Protectiveness in the male column only? But what if protectiveness as a common human quality at Sandy Hook Elementary School, when an active shooter invaded the school and started shooting the children, Vicki Soto, a woman teacher, physically placed herself in the line of fire trying to save the lives of children while she, a woman, courageously sacrificed her own life. Protectiveness, it's for men and women. It's a shared, common human quality. How about nurturing? It's going to be in the female column, right? Because a mother breastfeeds her baby, and as she does, she expresses nurturing, and she does so in a way that only a woman can nurture. So nurturing, a female-only quality? Well, what about a father who's skilled at both, as both an electrician and a plumber. And he expresses nurturing by training his children in both trades. Nurturing, a shared human characteristic. Please note, I'm not talking at all about roles. I'm not talking about roles. Rather, I'm presenting men and women in terms of their nature these shared characteristics, these shared structures, these shared qualities. I'm not talking about roles in terms of husband and wife in marital relationship. I'm not talking about roles in church. That's another sermon. That's another topic. We're focusing on a human nature, created and gendered human beings, image bearers. So let's take another and final example of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. We may immediately think of, uh, primarily in terms of husbands, in relation to their wives. They are called to self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is a good quality. And men and husbands, sorry, uh, uh, express this good quality of self-sacrifice as they love their wives. And that is good. But this is a biblical injunction 
associated with a marital role. And I'm not talking about roles. Also, don't think primarily in terms of wives in relation to their husbands. In this case, self-sacrifice, which is a good trait in submission, submitting to her husband, another good thing. It's a biblical injunction associated with a marital role. And I'm not talking about roles. Let's think rather in terms of siblings in Christ. Brothers and sisters, all of us, all of us are called to self-sacrifice on behalf of one another. That is a shared Christian quality. It's demanded of us in Scripture, 1 John 3.16. So Steve Kovic, who discipled me at the university, when he dreamed about becoming a missionary to what used to be Yugoslavia, gathered the six, seven guys that he was discipling at the end of our junior year, and he said, guess what? I have an invitation to become a missionary to Yugoslavia. And we were overjoyed for him. We were so thankful. But then Steve said, but I've turned the invitation down. How could that be, we asked. Because I have one more year with you guys to disciple you. And then maybe we'll see what happens later. That's self-sacrifice of his own dream, his own vision. Seemingly God's call in his life. He, he sacrificed himself. And we're all called to do that with respect in relationship to one another. Are you thankful for the gender that God created you? If you are a man, are you thankful that God created you as a man? If you're a woman, are you thankful that God created you as a woman? That's our application for point two. Third point is complementarity. Complementarity is God's design for his male image bearers and female image bearers to fill out and mutually support one another relationally, familially, vocationally, and ecclesially for the purpose of both individual flourishing and corporate flourishing. God's design for us male image bearers and female image bearers to fill out and mutually support one another in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces, and in our church for the purpose of individual and corporate flourishing. From our last point, we've established that each person is an image bearer of God and there are male image bearers and there are female image bearers. The big category, again, is humanity or humankind, of which there are two types, men and women. And God's design in, in, in all of this is for men and women to complement one another. God's design in creating us as male image bearers and female image bearers is for men and women to complement one another. We fill out one another. While each man is complete in and of himself, and while each woman is complete in and of herself, we help one another grow and mature. We help one another to get outside of ourselves to see life from a multi-perspectival way. We help one another to become more well-rounded, more well-grounded, and we depend on one another as we collaborate. 
Men and women, while divine image bearers individually, also fully express God's image together, corporately. We help one another by reflecting God and his marvelous character of love and goodness, righteousness, justice, faithfulness, truth-telling, and much more. We mutually support one another, providing our abilities, our talents, gifts, our skills, so that society flourishes and thrives. Together, we are men and women who subdue the earth and exercise dominion. We fulfill God's mandate to work. And when women and men suffer, we we come to the mutual aid of one another. We pick up one another. And when men and women thrive, we share our joys together and our successes so that we build up and encourage one another. That's complementarity. There are four areas in which complementarity is needed and is expressed. Four areas. First, relationships. The first area is relationships. Men and women are friends, interacting with one another for mutual benefit, supporting one another. We recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of each other. And so we work hard to encourage and utilize those strengths. And we fill up those weaknesses so they don't become debilitating. We promote the dreams, the hopes, the goals of one another. For Christian friends, relationships move us toward greater Christ-likeness, unity, and harmony. That's complementarity in our relationships. Second, families. Women and men are members in kinship relationships that are either natural and, and or adoptive connections. Someone has said that the greatest institution that God created is the family. And so we express complementarity in our family. All of us have parents, whether biological or adoptive, whether alive or have passed on. By God's gift, some men are husbands. By God's gift, some women are wives. By God's gift and calling, some are unmarried, single by choice, divorced, maybe widowed. Some have children. Some are children. I'm not talking about roles in this, remember. Each family member fills out and mutually supports one another. Family members share the same vision for the flourishing of their family. They work hard on the same mission to impact the world around them. They contribute to one another's growth and maturity for their well-being. Christians in families share and model the good news, the gospel, We pray for one another. We prompt one another toward love and good deeds. We push one another to know God and his character and to do his will. That's complementarity in our families. Third, our vocations. Men and women work together in jobs. As CEOs, educators, small business owners, male and female doctors, male and female nurses, military personnel, restaurant owners, farmers, and much, much more. When men and women in the workplace 
work together. They create a synergy with the influence or effect being greater than it would be if they were solo, if they were working individually and they were not co-workers. We want synergy by working together. And then our businesses thrive. Our medical expertise saves lives. Our wheat and corn production provides nutritious food. This is complementarity in vocation, in work. Fourth, last but not least, Complementarity is expressed in churches. Again, I'm not talking about roles. Women and men are sisters and brothers. We are siblings in Christ and siblings of one another. This is the key, most dominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament. Siblingship, family. I'm not talking about roles again. So men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, siblings in Christ were models of Christ-likeness to one another. We are practitioners of the one another's. We pray for one another and we help one another. We bear one another's burdens. We share the good news with one another. We comfort one another. We rejoice with one another. We're practitioners, both men and women, of the one another's. And we all have the great commission that we are, that we are seeking to fulfill by making disciples of other men and women. So we teach and admonish each other, Colossians 3 to 16. We plant churches together. We are missionaries together. We're co-workers in ministry. We're servants together in kids' ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, counseling ministries, Connections or assimilations ministries, worship ministries, discipling ministries, we work together. Again, I'm not talking about roles. Complementarity means that as image bearers of God, we must be the most Christ-like version of ourselves. We have to play our part. We have to do our part. We have to contribute who and what we are in our relationships, in our families, in our vocations, and in our church. And complementarity banishes all notions of superiority and inferiority. There's no room for that with complementarity. Complementarity produce, uh, uh, promotes cooperation rather than competition. Complementarity decries both authoritarian abuse and wimpy submission. It decries authoritarian abuse, whether that comes as physical, emotional, verbal, or financial. Complementarity says none of that. And complementarity also decries wimpy submission. Those who become so deferential that they hide their agency. They become invisible. They lose their voice. They fail to contribute. And they destroy complementarity and this design which calls for them to contribute and be agents in all these areas. As complementary to one another, image bearers should help one another to fulfill their God-designed and God-resourced purpose. Thus, image bearers are rightly and ultimately dependent on God and rightly dependent on one another. And we do not allow one another to fail. Complementarity also means 
that we do not have the right to be isolated from others or to isolate others from us. We don't have the right to refuse help to others. We don't have the right to refuse to be helped by others. And we do not have the right to deface the image bearing of others or permit others to deface our image bearing. This is complementarity in relationships, families, the workplace, and in church. Application as we finish, are you living out God's design of complementarity? Are you living out God's design of complementarity? What might complementarity look like in your relationships, in your family, in your workplace, and here in this church? Pray with me. Thank you for your word which instructs us about your creation of us as embodied image bearers, either male or female, and your design for us to complement one another. I pray for Christ's proclamation church, for each brother and sister here, for each member, they would live out this reality. They would be thankful for their embodied creatureliness. They would be thankful if they're a man for their being created a male, if they're women for being created women. And I pray that Christ's Proclamation Church would live out your design, Lord, for complementarity. I pray your blessings upon us and uh, help us to put your word into practice. In Christ's name. Amen.